am I. Good morning. This is Judith Lay welcoming you to Manx Radio and to the podcast of this week's edition of At Your Service. Manx Radio. The science is settled. This is no longer a scientific issue. Now it's a political, social and religious issue. And what is that issue? My special guest, environmental scientist Dr Douglas Fox, will explain. And Ruth Rice is back, telling us all about the Quain Girls on a Sunday. We've got notice board news and our music today is from the Celtic musicians, Came. I bind unto myself today the strong name of the tree. St. Patrick's Breastplate, sung by the Celtic group, came, and there'll be more from them during the programme. But now it's time to meet my special guest, environmental scientist Dr. Doug Fox, who, with his wife Carol, an ordained minister in the Methodist Church, divide their year between their home in the United States and their home in Peel, where they can be found from Easter to October. But, as we're about to hear, the island is far, far more important to them than just an attractive holiday destination. It's become an essential part of their faith journey, and Doug joins me now to tell his story of some significant moments in his life as a scientist that have challenged and energised his life as a Christian. I wasn't brought up in a religious family. In fact, my mother's only encounter with religion was that her younger brother had converted to Catholicism in the 20s. 
And at that time, he had to sign away all his life previous to that. And so my mother was highly insulted by that. And all she ever cared about was that we weren't Catholic and we had nothing to do with Catholics. So for me, I, I was confirmed in a Presbyterian church, but the only reason for that was because my brother was dating the minister's daughter at the time. <laughs> so <laughs> I was always interested in religion. And when Carol and I got together, my wife Carol, uh, we've been married for 58 years now, was Catholic. And that, of course, made my mother very happy. <laughs> we, we, we did get married in a Catholic church, uh, but it was a mission church to a um, Hispanic housing development in New York City. Uh, and we got married in this mission church and had the fellows choir that sang in Spanish for us. And, and he didn't require me to sign away all the requirements that the Catholic church at the time was doing. So I went on to graduate school, got my, uh, my degrees and things, and became increasingly interested in religion over that period of time, as did Carol. She eventually <laughs> left the Catholic Church and joined the Methodists and became a minister in the Methodist Church. But it was really coming over here to the Isle of Man where I first truly encountered what many of us call Celtic Christianity. And I think it's that Celtic Christianity that I realized was what my belief system was. And that supported everything I, I did. And I, I now look back and, and realize that through the years, I was always sort of leaning toward the Celtic way of looking at things and, and didn't really appreciate it. would like to talk about is four experiences that I had. These experiences relate to, I think, my evolution as a Celtic Christian, if you will. My background is, is a, as a scientist, as I said. I um, started my scientific work at a place called the National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder, Colorado. NCAR was a, a very exciting place to be. It, it was created in the, in the mid-60s. Uh, I went there in 1968. And it was a place where the very, very best of the best uh, scientists who were working in atmospheric sciences came to spend some time. NCAR was created because atmospheric sciences required big computers and airplanes and satellites and resources that universities just didn't have. So the universities got together and created this center. And as I said, we had Nobel Prize winners. We had the top of the top. And it was there at NCAR that I realized that I was never going to be one of these record-breaking, top-notch scientists. We were having children at the time. We had three kids in five years. And I realized that for me, for life to be meaningful for me, I had to spend more time with my kids and family and not devote myself entirely to doing this kind of science that we were doing. It was very exciting science. We were right on the beginnings of uh, climate change research. We were starting to make models of the atmospheric system and starting to see that humans were impacting the climate. So it was very exciting. But for me, to have a full life, I felt like I needed to spend more time with my family. And so that was like my first Celtic realization that time is too precious to just be wasted on work, that we need to have some sort of reasonable balance and time is precious and we need to use that time most appropriately for our own personal development. Come on, wisdom. 
I left that job primarily because of that and I went to work at a government laboratory and, and was very fortunate to be selected as a member of uh, the first U.S.-Soviet science exchange. Uh, this was a, an activity that the government started in the early 70s. The U.S. government started as an attempt at uh, improving the relationship during the Cold War. So they felt atmospheric science is universal. Everybody had weather and everybody wanted each other's data on weather and everybody shared data. And so we would send a group of American scientists to Russia and the Soviet Union and they'd send Soviets back to the U.S. And so I spent uh, about three or four years doing that, going back and forth between Russia and the U.S. It was an incredible experience. I was in my late 20s at the time, so I was very young. And I got to meet peers who were uh, doing the same kind of work that we were doing. And it was, it was very exciting. I learned there, I guess I learned a lot of things. The first thing I learned was that everybody is the same. People, no matter where they are, were the same. These Soviets who were supposedly our enemy were really very nice people and <laughs> lovely individuals and were very hospitable toward us. But they were afraid of us. And they were afraid of Americans because of the propaganda that their government had been giving them, that Americans were the enemy and we were out to get them and, and our system was out to get their system. And it was astounding. As we developed a relationship, we became you know, a little closer. We, we began to be able to point out to them that their economy was in a shambles at the time. They had no food. They had multi-generational families living in two- and three-bedroom apartments. Nothing worked. When we pointed this out to our Soviet friends, they said, yes, yes, we know we have a hard time now, but we're going to be better in the future, and you're going to be much worse off. And so I realized a number of things. Firstly, that people are the same everywhere. There were good people that I met and not so good people that I met. That, that evil is in our individual hearts. It's not a collective societal, cultural thing. I learned that uh, there really don't need to be borders between people. God didn't invent countries. We did. And I think sometimes they're one of the biggest problems we created. The interesting thing was that the government had convinced these people that we were out to get them and, and they were afraid of us. And it made me realize just the power of, of that propaganda, that if there's a constant drumbeat saying one thing, realities and things don't carry through. And the same is true with Ukraine right now. The sadness is that Putin and his colleagues are leading and convincing his people. You watch interviews on television and people still say, oh, I, I support my Russia. You know, we have to do this. The, these Ukrainians are after us. This propaganda, it's, it, you know, the only solution for this is knowledge and, and have a, an independent source of information. And that's so important and so critical. I was reading something the other day. It was in Sojourner's magazine, which is a U.S. magazine. This fellow was talking about science and religion, and he was saying that uh, in the U.S., we've started to pop up with um, so signs that go on our front gardens. You know, this is very popular in the U.S. to have little signs that, that profess your faith or your belief system. You know, I support Trump, I hate Trump, <laughs> you know, these kinds of signs. And this fellow was saying that he saw a sign saying, I support science. Well, that's kind of an, an interesting statement, isn't it? That to support science becomes like a faith statement. I believe in God, I support science. The social media have created such a confusion of facts that people are mixing apples and oranges incorrectly, you know? They're not seeing that one is different from the other. 
science and religion don't really conflict with each other. Science is a mechanism of gaining knowledge. It's a way of hypothesizing and then observing, collecting data, and seeing if the data fits the hypothesis. If it does, you accept it and you've learned something and you have a, a new fact. Religion is a totally different thing. For, for me, God is a presence that is unknowable and unknown and beyond our, our realm. So in my mind, God created the human intellect and God created science. And so science is simply a way of learning more about what's going on around us. And God is a whole different world above that. third experience I wanted to talk about was the research that we did. I spent about 20 years working for the U.S. Forest Service. Forest Service in the United States manages the land resource in the western United States that's publicly owned. It's not only forests, it's mostly forest land, but mountains, high mountains, valley, desert valleys, grasslands. About 20% of the land in the United States is managed by the Forest Service. And of that, another 20% of, of that land is what we call wilderness, roadless areas. And so my research team that I led focused on trying to learn how humans impact these natural landscapes. How does human pollution affect it? How does human climate change lead to changes in these environments? And so we did a lot of experiments. We worked primarily in a location that we call the Glacial Lakes Ecosystem Experiment Site that we created in the uh, Snowy Range Mountains in south-central Wyoming. Our site was 33 to 3,500 meters high, so it's high elevation above timberline, lots of it. And we had two watersheds there, one that we could manipulate by adding pollution or changing the climate in it, and the other to leave it alone, and so we could test the effects. And that site has been going on for 35 years now, and we've learned a tremendous amount about how these high elevation ecosystems respond to human impacts. And I guess what I've come away from that learning is that the climate is indeed changing. These climate change impacts are profound and subtle and very, very difficult for us to really anticipate and predict. So I came away with two things. One was respecting the complexity of nature, of God's creation, uh, how incredibly subtle and complex it is. A number of examples, one in particular I think is interesting, it has to do with pollution pulses that come from melting snow. Nothing is soluble in ice, and so pollutants that are in rain and snow that fall sits on the surface of the ice crystals in the snowpack. When that melts, there's a big slug of high concentration chemicals that come down through the stream. If that occurs at the same time that trout, for example, are spawning, and those egg sacs are taking on water, that'll kill off that year's fish. If it occurs earlier or later, then the fish are fine. They can sustain the water around them as long as it's not in the egg sac. So the subtlety of whether trout are going to be affected by climate change depends on the timing of the snow melt relative to the timing of the spawning of the fish. This is just a subtlety kind of thing that, that makes it so hard for us to actually predict what's likely to happen as a result of climate change on the ecosystems that we live with. So again, the beauty of nature, the, the wonders of, of God's creation and the complexity of it all uh, is... Uh, 
is what we learned after you know many many years and are still learning uh, about how to how to cope with and how to deal with some of these effects there are so many other aspects of, of climate change and, and the effects of climate change that are similar to that it's a very subtle kind of effect and and that's what makes it very difficult for people to comprehend because the stakes are so high i mean we need to do something but knowing what to do becomes a real challenge for us. We need to be wise and, and thoughtful as we particularly develop infrastructure here on the island. We need to be aware of the likelihood that sea levels are going to be rising over, over time. We need to pay attention to the predictions of changes. Winters aren't going to be quite as cold as they were. Springs are not going to be quite as wet as they have been. These are subtle changes. We don't know exactly how quickly they're going to occur, but we do need to be aware of them. And make our decisions accordingly. I guess the, the, the final experience I had was the last uh, 10 or 15 years of my career. I was very fortunate to be selected by the U.S. government to be a member of what's called the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. That's the UN body that's charged with writing consensus scientific documents about the state of science. My selection occurred in the early 90s, and, and I was one of the senior authors, actually, of a report called the Second scientific assessment report, which was published in 1995. So going back a long time now, 27 years, that second assessment report got a lot of notoriety. In fact, along with Al Gore, the authors of that were awarded the Nobel Prize in, in 2007, the Nobel Peace Prize. So that's something I'm very proud of. But my result of, of doing that was I became part of the international lecture circuit talking about climate change. And I spent a tremendous amount of time in Asia talking with the Asian burgeoning economy, the Asian tigers, talking about climate change and trying to help them along paths of lower carbon dioxide emissions and more greener kinds of developments so that they could develop, but develop in a cleaner, greener way than what we had done in the Western world. But for me, the single most important experience was about 10 years worth of teaching. I got involved with the UN Food and Agriculture Organization, FAO, through them uh, with the University of Turin in Italy. There we ran a course every summer. We invited about 25 to 30 people from developing countries to come to Italy and spend two weeks in the Alps. These people were from the poorest of the poor countries. They, they were primarily from countries that had, had no economic capabilities or, or whose economic capabilities were severely impacted by climate change and mountain communities, all of them. We had people primarily from Asian and African countries who were on the cutting edge of the impacts of climate, dealing 
with societies that were fully impacted already by climate change. These folks were all people who had graduated from university, largely in Europe or the U.S., and then gone back to their countries and were working in their countries. And so we did this two-week course. It was really a workshop where we worked together and learned together what might be some potential solutions for them. That activity gave me this incredible experience of people who are really at the coal face, so to speak, of climate change. They were dealing with climate change. I remember a, a young man from Afghanistan talking about having to go with armed guards into different communities that he was going to because depending on whether the chief of that particular sect or group was willing to allow them in or not, it might change from day to day, and they never knew when they were going to be allowed in or going to be shot at. We're trying to help the community find ways of a more sustainable existence and ways to cope with the, the threats that were occurring to them. I remember another group of people from, from uh, downstream in, in Bangladesh. There were two communities of people, communities of people who lived on the water and communities of people who lived next to the water. As a result of climate change, the water was rising. The floods were more intense, the kinds of things we're seeing in Pakistan right now. The problem was the people who lived on the water hated the people who lived on the land, and the people who lived on the land refused to live on the water because those were awful people who lived on the water. So the solution was for everybody to live in boats, but to get the people from the land to do that became a huge challenge. What I learned from that was, was it, it just gave me great faith in our human ability to survive and our human ability to learn and and cope with the challenges. If we survive climate change, it'll be because of young people like the ones that we were teaching in this in this course. So that for me was, was the ultimate experience of my, of my career. I, I just really enjoyed that. The fact is the science is settled. We know the climate is changing. We know why it's changing. We understand the physics of the situation. It's complicated, but we do know that by increasing the carbon dioxide input that we're putting into the atmosphere, we're heating the atmosphere up, and the heated up atmosphere is more energetic and is going to lead to lots of changes and lots of local impacts. We know these facts. Climate change is not a scientific issue anymore. Now it's a political, social, and religious issue. I mean, it comes down to your belief system, doesn't it? It comes down to, am I willing to do something about this, or am I going to just continue living the way I live now and not care about it? I think this year we're going to be helped along by the price of gas and the price of electricity. We're becoming a lot more frugal with our use of these resources. And that, and that's probably a good thing. Maybe it's a wake-up call for us. It's not any longer a scientific issue. It's a social issue. It's something that we need to pay attention to. And I think the dynamics of that social issue are that we wealthy people have created this system. The impacts of it are on the poor people of the world. It's up to us. We have to do something about that. We can't allow that to continue. Coming to the Isle of Man, as we did in 1998 for the first time, getting off Manx airplane from Dublin, I think it was, and landing at Ronald's Way the first time, Carol and I both felt that we had uh, arrived at a place where we belonged. We often use the John Denver line, coming home to a place we'd never been before. For us, for me, the culmination of my cultic Christian reality has been to come to this thin place, the Isle of Man, and, and to be able to be here and to be welcomed by all of the wonderful people here has been the greatest experience of our lives. Graceful Trinity of Love, hear our prayer. You were at the beginning, you are now, you shall be evermore. 
grant us peace. With the ebb of the tide, with the turn of the season, grant us peace. Father, Son and Spirit, hear our prayer. My guest today, scientist Dr. Doug Fox, sums up the deep sense of homecoming that he and his wife Carol feel for this island. Doug and Carol will be heading back to the States in a few weeks' time. We wish them safe travels and we look forward to welcoming them back to Peel next spring. And now it's time to welcome back Manx-born Ruth Rice, who joins us each week to share another letter from her personal alphabet of well-being. Ruth founded Renew Wellbeing following her own breakdown some 10 years ago. Renew Wellbeing is a charity that helps churches to run simple cafe-style spaces where mental well-being is the top priority. Anyone who comes to a Renew space is encouraged to find their own inner peace and wholeness. But Ruth has created this personal alphabet in the hope that what she has found helpful might help us too. We've reached the letter Q, and given that Ruth's maiden name is Quain, we might just possibly be getting some insights into Ruth's family life now. So my maiden name is Quain, and Q is for Quain girls on a Sunday. My sisters and I used to have this thing where we did do a lot of church on a Sunday. And this is one of those things I'm going to admit to you because it is good for my mental and emotional health to tell you about this. But basically, we'd go to church on a Sunday and we'd sing beautifully together in three-part harmony and then come back home and squabble like cats and dogs and often end in tears. And, and it usually happened on a Sunday when we were doing lovely, nice things at church. And then when we get home, it would be like a kind of, avalanche of stuff going on. I I also had lots of lovely, lovely memories of Queen Girls hanging out together on a Sunday, but we still, even now we are all married and not called Queen anymore, we still call it Queen Girls on a Sunday when we have a little meltdown. Sometimes, sometimes when we're putting on a little bit of a mask for church particularly and we drop that mask, sometimes it's the people who love us most who get the worst out of us. And I admit to that now and try to make sure that there isn't the same mask wearing, not pretending to be something that we aren't, just being honest. If we're having a bad day, we're having a bad day. We call it Queen Girls on a Sunday. I love those queens. I still am a queen. Of course you are, Ruth. And Ruth will be back with another letter from her personal alphabet of well-being next week. And Ruth will be here on the island at the end of October to lead a well-being retreat at Tide of A, the House of Life, our retreat centre in Peel. I'll have more information about that in next week's programme. But if you want to find out more straight away, just go to the website. The address is very easy, retreathouse.im. And Retreat House is all one word and all lowercase. And you'll find all the details of Ruth's well-being retreat under the What's On tab. And now let's take a look at the rest of our notice board. The Mariners' Choir will be in Begaro Chapel tonight for a service starting at half past six, at which Mrs Sue Yardy will preach. As usual, it'll be followed by supper and community hymn singing with a warm welcome for all. Union Mills Methodist Church are celebrating their harvest today and they have an evening service tonight at half past six that will be led by Mrs Brenda Kinnish with soloist Mrs Nikki Fletcher Causer. Supper will follow the service and all are welcome. Two items of news now from Sandygate Chapel on Jerby Road.
They have their Harvest Thanksgiving service tonight at half past six, led by Mr Bert Quayle. And then tomorrow, an autumn flower festival at Sandy Gate begins. The chapel will be open each weekday, Monday to Friday, that's the 26th to the 30th, between 10am and 4pm. And whilst admission is free and refreshments will be available, donations to help with chapel funds would be much appreciated. Looking ahead to next weekend, and as it's the first Saturday of the month, it's time for the craft market at Glen May Chapel and Community Centre. That's next Saturday with new extended opening hours. The Glen May Craft Market will be open from 11am to 4pm. As usual, entry is free and it's all homemade produce and handicrafts by local artists with gifts, knitwear, jewellery, artwork and much more. There will be homemade light lunches, bacon baps, hot drinks and cakes. Just head for Glen May, look out for the bunting and the banners. And next Sunday, October the 2nd, it's the Dolby Harvest Home. Their service of Thanksgiving and celebration is next Sunday evening at half past six in Dolby Church. With harvest hymns, local reminiscence and music from Paul Costain with Annie Kissack and Phil Gorn. And the service will be followed by supper in Dolby schoolrooms. And that's all that we have time for now. But I'll be back tonight at nine o'clock for sundown. Easy listening music to round off your weekend. And I'd love you to join me if you can. Do please email me if you've got items for the notice board. My address is judithlay at manxradio.com. So till whenever we meet again, this is Judith saying thank you for listening and I wish you and those you love a blessed and peaceful week and a very good morning. Mm-hmm.